Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the blatant pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. First off, uh, welcome back to the TechTrip Podcast as we took a few weeks off for the holidays, including last week. And part of the reason for not being on the air last week was that I, along with uh, about 170,000 other people or so, took the annual January pilgrimage to Las Vegas for CES 2016, a show that its creators took pains to remind reporters is no longer supposed to be called the Consumer Electronics Show, but rather just International CES 2016. Uh, Hell, even the organization behind CES has renamed itself from the Consumer Electronics Association, or CEA, to the Consumer Technology Association, now called CTA. Either way, CES is a huge event every year, and it's one that many people seem to enjoy Um, sometimes mocking or attacking the show as well. It's become something of a silly pastime, I think, to talk about how terrible CES is, but personally, I always enjoy going, uh, mainly because it's great for meetings and getting to talk to lots of smart folks. I personally don't actually end up doing that much work covering the various technologies and gadgets that have debuted or whatever is going around, or even spending that much time walking the multiple and ever-expanding show floors. However, someone who does do that and has done so every year for many, 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 many years is reporter Reb, uh, Rob Pegarero. Uh, I just stumbled over his name, which is embarrassing. I apologize for that. Whose byline I saw on at least three different sites during the course of CES, uh, mainly USA Today and Yahoo Tech. Rob has been going to CES since way before it was cool uh, and way before it was hated. And not only has great tips on how to survive CES, but always has great insights on what happened there. So given all that, I asked him to join us this week on the Tech Dirt podcast for a bit of a wrap up on the show and what was most compelling. So welcome, Rob. Thanks for having me. Sure. Uh, So how many years have you been going to CES now? First year I went there was 1998, and the big news then was digital TV. It was having its first big moment on the show floor, and and back then DTV meant you could buy a cathode ray tube TV that was 34 inches across, (laughs) showing high definition. Just pretty amazing stuff. Yes, yes, yes. And TVs that always seems like the the like the touchstone that people focus on with with CES. Like it's always well, what is what is the new TV thing, right? Yeah, exactly. The industry, you can never just declare, uh, you know, run up a mission accomplished banner and and go home. You have to sell them on something else. So DTV begat, you know, HDTV begat flat panel TVs. And so it was like, oh, how's plasma doing? How's LCD? There were micro displays that came and went, which were the sort of almost flat TVs that were sort of sloped on the back. Right. Um, you had 3D TV, which no one really wants to talk about anymore. And <laughs> that was the biggest thing ever, though, so wasn't that? Was everyone was going to want a 3D TV? A lot of people wanted buying them. I, I should note my Blu-ray player does play 3D discs. Okay. It was not a feature on my shopping list. It was just what was included in the, the device that otherwise met my specifications. Right. 
And since 2012, it's been all about ultra-high def, UHD, a.k.a. 4K, which is four times the resolution of HD. Right. And then and then there's there's 8K, right? That's the... Yes, that's been... <laughs> it's funny, you know, first of all, we all finally get around to upgrading our TVs. Some of us, there's a friend of mine who still has a CRT, I'm not going to name him. But I have told <laughs> him he's not allowed to ask me for help making that thing do anything anymore. <laughs> and then starting... You know, four years ago, the electronics industry started saying, HDTV was nice. We can do better. Right. That's true that on a screen, too big to fit in my living room, UHD does look nice. <laughs> but it's had big problems to deal with in terms of, like, what goes on smaller screens? Where are you going to find stuff to watch? When does it, you know, get somewhat affordable, if not at the same price as HDTV? Yeah. I actually um, right now find myself amazingly in the market for a new television, um, mainly because uh, my my son uh, a few weeks ago took our. Um, I don't like where this is going. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know exactly where it's going, which is uh, he was playing with the, with the Wii and was doing Wii bowling and happened to fling the uh, oh, the, the Wii remote right into the TV, and so. Um, they uh, they do break. <laughs> I discovered very personally. Um, so uh, we we haven't quite figured out what we're gonna do, and we've survived for for now about three weeks without one. Um, but at, at some point, I figured when I was at CES, maybe I would look and see what was around. But I didn't really get a chance. <laughs> um, but <laughs> anyway, talk to me about that. Yeah. Well, let me take a step back from 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 the TVs and the, and the stuff that was there. But but. Um, just because you've been going so long, I, I've been I've gone for many years, but nowhere nearly as long as, as you have. But um, for people who haven't been to CES, how, how would you describe what the show is like, or, or what the I guess the overall experience is like? Hmm. Um, in a word, crowds. It's yeah. one hundred seventy thousand. I think it's one hundred seventy-five thousand people. That's what it's been the last two years. Most of whom are concentrated in a few different spaces. There's the Las Vegas Convention Center which is three separate buildings, each the size of a large aircraft hangar. The, the central hall is actually big enough you could build aircraft hangars inside of it. Right. Um, the Sands uh, exhibit space, which is only about two miles away and is in no way convenient. A lot of the time, the fastest way to get from the LVCC to the Sands is to walk it. Yep. Because this is Vegas, there's no you know super effective mass transit. The monorail, of course, does not stop at the second biggest <laughs> convention center in town. Right. Uh, there are various hotels. People show up for a week. It's right after New Year's, not because of some evil plot by CTA to ruin everyone's you know post-holiday <laughs> good feelings, although that is a side effect. Uh, originally, just because retailers wanted some place to get together right after the holidays, they could still have the lessons learned from their sales in mind, and they could then also meet manufacturers who, back in these days of more gently paced product cycles could then see, here's what we're going to have in September and October, so people could sort of get their strategy set for the whole year. Right. Well, now, you know, stuff gets updated when it gets updated. The timetable isn't as critical, but we, meaning I, am stuck with CES in January. <laughs> I, I don't know what it's like for normal people to have the first two weeks of January to themselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it really uh, it messes with the overall calendar, <laughs> which is why I've, I've actually skipped it a few years here and there, but... Uh... Um, you, I guess, haven't had that luxury. <laughs> I'm serving a life sentence at the show, as far as I can tell. 
Um, all right. So now, so now let's get back to to what, what the actual show was this year. Um, what do you think? You know, the, the the sort of standard question that everyone asks about, you know, when they hear you've gone to CES, or even, you know, everyone that you run into at CES, sort of what was the, what did you think was kind of the coolest or most interesting things that you you saw on the floor? The coolest things I saw weren't actually on the floor. They were in a sort of private showroom LG had set up to show what they can do with a kind of flat panel TV technology called OLED, organic light emitting diode. That's been around since I think 2006 is when I might have seen it first demoed. And it's a technology that's been easy to put in small screens. Odds are if you have a non-Apple um, smartphone, you've got at least 25% chance of that having an OLED screen. Mm-hmm. The trick is making it in really large screen sizes at a good yield rate so it doesn't cost five times what an LCD screen might cost. LG has they sort of got past that cost curve faster than others. So they're saying they hope to be able to sort of eliminate the price premium for OLED. Hmm. And they set up a room to say, by the way, here's what else you can do because OLED is so thin. So they showed off there was one TV that was sort of bent at a completely concave angle, not gently like the curved TVs you see in stores, but something that would like fit in the inside of a column. Huh. A convex screen the same way. They had a serpentine wall of video screens. They had one screen which rotated around to show that there was another TV in the back of it, which sounds like somebody's practical joke or a commentary on America's addiction to video, but... <laughs> They explained there were various business uses you might need that for. It was a transparent OLED TV, which they said you could use to, when not watching TV, show off your nice wallpaper behind it. <laughs> uh, one of the people on the demo, uh, Lance Yulinoff from Mashable, he had the brilliant idea of taking a selfie through the TV. Nice. And we're all thinking, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> That's right. That's a good idea. And the, the last part, well, they showed an actual rollable TV screen, which was an 18-inch you know, OLED display on flexible glass, plastic, substrate of some kind. You, know, you wouldn't want to like roll it up like a newspaper. The technician showing it off was wearing white gloves and being very <laughs> careful to roll it up gently. Uh-huh. Uh, but, you know, that's science fiction stuff that, you know, I've seen shown off before, but only in e-ink form where it's just black and white. Right. And this was displaying a regular color picture, not at HD, but, you know, it's early days, as they like to say. Yeah. So that was neat. At the same time, am I going to have any of these things in my home anytime soon? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that seems to be common. I mean, the, the, almost all of the, the coolest things that everyone talked about are things that, that not only might, might not be in your home soon, might never be in your home. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, the one that I heard about the most, well, there were two that I heard about a lot and, and made sure to go check out. And one was um, the Faraday car. I did not get around to see that. Like, I read about it and I thought, and it was only after I'd read the lead the first time that the seat's one person, right? Yeah. it's. It, I mean, it, I mean, it's clearly, you know, just kind of a, a, a showpiece car. <laughs> like, one of the reactions that everyone had to it was, how do you get in? There, there are no doors. <laughs> You're sort of extruded into it. It's uh... <laughs> that's right. Um, I mean, it you know it had this sort of you know Batmobile look to it. Um, yeah, from the pictures, that was my thought. I'm like, that this looks like the Batmobile. Yeah, yeah. Which, granted, Batman was not buying it to pick up groceries or, or drop <laughs> those kids at uh, daycare or anything. <laughs> yeah, but you know, and, and for people who don't know, I guess you know Faraday is kind of um, it's it's an electric car maker that that has gotten a lot of attention because i guess they they've raised a ton of money and everyone's sort of trying to compare them to tesla um not not 
not only because they're both companies are named after you know famous old uh <laughs> inventors but in like electrical engineering you know faraday brings to mind faraday cage which is a an enclosure through which wireless radiation doesn't pass also known as yes. my experience using my phone at sands thursday when i had no signal unless i was sitting right up against the door <laughs> uh, yeah well that's the other thing about ces um Everything that should work doesn't work. Doesn't seem yeah, to work. Yeah, where technology goes to die. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that was cool. And and I, I mean, I thought the the Faraday thing was 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 pretty cool. And and I mean, there was one thing that that struck me at least was that you know there was a whole section, um, you know, in the North Hall that was all automobile stuff, and there was a lot of, um, you know, both electric vehicles and autonomous driving and and things like that. And um, I think the like Detroit Auto Show comes up soon. I'm not entirely positive about that, but it's, I think it's yeah. Some poor slobs every year have to go from Las Vegas directly to Detroit right. to cover both shows. Yeah, but but it's interesting to me that even you know it, it, automobiles have become a big part of. I mean, they've always been. I mean, for a while they've been a part of it, but it seems like a bigger and bigger part of it where people are realizing that you know cars are you know, now a technology uh, thing as well. And so that, that's... Absolutely. The the North Hall used to be, uh, you know, go, just going back to the late 2000s, that was where it was the province of companies where if you wanted to have the trunk of your car consisted of nothing but loudspeakers, you could do that. <laughs> so it was the loudest part of CES. It was the part most likely to have, um, you know, exhibitors on the show floor in uh, female exhibitors in attire that I uh, <laughs> would not approve of my daughter ever wearing, let's put it that way. And uh, yeah, not, not the classiest place. And then a few years ago, companies started showing up like car manufacturers showing off their new models. And this year Chevy decided to debut their bolt electric vehicle at CES yeah. instead of you know, next week at the North American international auto show. Right. Um, yeah. Did you get a chance to see that? Uh, not in motion. I had an appointment to test drive the thing, and I was, you know, writing too slow will will kill you every time at CES. And yeah. I was just it was either go to that where one of my colleagues has already written about it, or get my work done and not annoy my editors further. So in the press room, I stayed. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. Uh, interesting. Um, and then so. One of the other ones that the one of the other things that I heard a lot of people talking about and also went to go check out on the, on the show floor um, was, was also I guess in the transportation realm, but but a little bit different, and that was the the e-hang personal drone. Yes, I saw that too. <laughs> which which you know for those who didn't hear about it is a is a drone like like all of the you know little um, you know copters that 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 people have have seen flying around um that that are normally you know unmanned aerial vehicles you know maybe with a camera or something but this one is big enough to actually stick a person in there and i think they said it would fly for about 60 miles um maybe, yep. maybe about 20 minutes of power um what'd you think of that one <laughs> So I thought, you know, we're definitely living in the future. Here we have this thing where you it, you can't call it unmanned. It's not piloted either. The passenger is, is best thought of as self-loading cargo in this thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, practicality, maybe not so much. They, they you know, they talked to their business development VP, and she said, "We're we're thinking three hundred thousand dollars ish." Yeah. Which 
that would that would buy a whole lot of Uber. Um, it's <laughs> you know it's not exactly clear where you would park it. They had this video showing this thing commuting, taking someone on a commute to the financial district of San Francisco, as if dot commers <laughs> need a bigger <laughs> image problem. Yeah, really? <laughs> oh my gosh! Yeah, I mean I, the the truth is though there are some who don't care, so maybe they. But yeah, that would be obnoxiousness. Their commute system would be a feature, not a bug. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Um, Yeah, but but we should be clear that this is this is that would be illegal right now. You cannot fly one of those things in in the U.S. Um, Yeah, and so I asked them like, where do you fit into the? You know, the FAA has a lot of regulations that that work to keep you know air travel very safe. Where do you fit? They said, I don't know. Conveniently enough, the FAA had a booth about a hundred feet away. Walked over to them. They said, "We don't know either. They should talk to us." <laughs> said, "Well, they, they, you know, not that far away. You can yeah. meet halfway in the middle." Yeah, really, <laughs> really. Yeah, I, I, I would guess, given the way the FAA has dealt with drones uh, in general so far, that they, they probably don't even want to deal with that headache. <laughs> no, they, they have other things to take care of first. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it it was interesting, and just you know, from that sort of you know Jetsons, you know, futuristic idea, you know, like everyone's always talked about the flying car, right? The flying car is always the thing of the future, um, and this isn't technically a flying car, but but there was no wheels, no no wheels, um, but there was something about it where I was like, you know, conceptually, that's kind of cool if you could. You it, know, it did make me think of. Uh the the cars the cops had in Blade Runner. Yeah. It it definitely has had that feel to it. Um but, you know, again, you know, just the idea that you could punch into your into your phone, like, oh, I need to go here and, and hop in and, and yes, they're they're super expensive, but you know, obviously when they first start out things are, are more expensive. So so moving on to, to some of the other stuff that was there, you know, I mean there was a, a lot of talk about um virtual reality and and augmented reality and oculus uh obviously made a lot of news at the show did you have any did you get any chance to kind of check out what was going on over there some of the stuff you know it's like everyone has i look at the vr stuff and it's neat i i don't actually didn't come away from this thinking i must have you know i've got to put one of these headsets on my (laughs) wish list for my birthday or next Christmas or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, I think in terms of practical applications, there's a lot to be said for augmented reality. One demo I missed, but which Ars Technica caught, um, Hyundai, they're coming out with a, an augmented reality manual where you just point your, your phone under the hood and the camera shows what's there and it highlights, you know, this is where the dipstick is. This is where, you know, you refill this or that, which is great. And that's a good use of technology to solve the problem of, you know, you're holding the manual in one hand, looking under the hood with a flashlight with the other, like, where is this? Yeah. Uh, you know, very boring. Of course, what got a lot more press was there was a uh, demo of uh, VR porn I <laughs> did not have time for. Uh, it was it was an off-site demo. Those are really- <laughs> I see. <laughs> and you didn't make time for it, Rob? <laughs> Stupid deadlines, like I said. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um... And then um, another thing that obviously was was a, a big topic and has always been a big topic uh, in the last few months is is this whole Internet of Things thing. <laughs> um, IoT. Yeah, and and uh, I even got 
an invite to go check out the the world's first smart rubber duck um which i i didn't how, how dare they stub me like that? i i should have forwarded my invite to you <laughs> I, I did not go check out it had a name and i think it was a hundred bucks for for an internet connected rubber duck um <laughs> but uh was there anything that you saw in the sort of internet of things world that you thought was interesting well, the thing to watch for there is, is what people aren't necessarily going to talk about, which is, you know, number one, what's the interop interoperability situation? Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if your new smart light bulb or whatever is only going to work with uh, an iPhone and not an Android phone, no thanks. I, I don't think light bulbs, uh, no matter how nice you determine what kind of phone I use. Uh, and the other one is security. Yeah. Where there are way too many vendors on the show floor for them all to be doing the right job. Yeah. You know, like I talked to one and that they said like it, it was a, a company called Nucleus, no relation to Silicon Valley. They said, we picked this brand name years before. Huh. We're not a Hooli affiliate. Um, you know, the HBO show. And yes. they said, well, look, you know, see our, our little communications hub, there's a physical slider to block off the camera. Uh, we are going to hire a bunch of white hat hackers to do a pen test of this to make sure it's, it's secure. I'm like, that's good. Uh, really low odds that everyone on the show floor, which is like half of the Sands exhibit space, yeah. is taking the same care. Yeah. And it was, if I believe I was reading this on Tector just about 20 minutes ago, um, <laughs> the, the, the web browser on some smart TVs can be hacked, yep. not because of some you know, adversary specifically going after smart TVs, just because it was a generic attack on web browsers. But how, how do you debug a... <laughs> Smart TVs embedded web browser. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's a, it's a. I think it's a, it's a really big concern, and there've already been a bunch of stories, and I, I think it's only going to get worse. You know, a lot of those companies, you know, as kind of as you were saying, they they can talk a good game, but the reality is, you know, most of these products, I don't, I think, have not been sort of built with a sort of um, security mindset from the ground up, and. You know, the, that can be kind of scary when you talk about some of the stuff that, that these things can control. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, it's sort of the, the early days and there's so much hype. But I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I, I think it'll work out. I think all these things get worked out eventually. But I think a lot needs to be done in terms of actually thinking through, you know, what is security. I was telling somebody on the flight back that um, my favorite smart home device I have it's it's a little uh, solar powered light that's outside the back steps going into the basement. It has two sensors. One determines whether or not it is sunny outside, in which case the light can stay off. Uh -huh. Another one detects motion. That's it. There's nothing to program. There's no right. clock to set. Uh, it doesn't even plug into the the home wires. All I had to do was like put a couple of screws in the wall, attach the bracket to it, and and that's it. Can't be hacked. There's nothing to change, and I don't need to do anything else but illuminate when I step outside to make my way to the compost bin. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, a lot of these, you know, I don't even know what that, the smart duck, smart rubber duck does, but like <laughs> a lot of these really just seem like, you know, what, what, what exactly, you know, what is the problem that they're actually solving? And, you know, I, I, sometimes that's okay because actually, I mean, I do think there are certain innovations that come about, you know, when people just kind of mess around and, and try things out and something comes out of it. But um, I don't know. <laughs> a lot of these IoT things just seem like, uh, you know, 
someone just you know what what can we add internet to without ever thinking yeah you know, why would not, we not everything that? needs to have some internet connectedness and to you know run the code of a general purpose computer on the inside yeah, yeah. and i i mean you know i always think that the you know the the sort of real killer apps um that come about are the, are the things that come about because you know when you can do something that you couldn't have done before um but so much of this just seems like well you know we're not, we're, they're not doing anything that's um you know i i mean i guess some of this couldn't be done before but there's no reason to but you know it's, it's not doing something that's that's powerful and unique it's really just kind of like well we, we have we, good. right we have this and we have this and if we connect it and and you know hopefully maybe that does lead to the things that are more useful um but yeah i haven't i haven't really seen that much compelling in terms of of that yet but i mean one thing i definitely noticed i mean you know that the iot stuff was mostly over at the sands and um you know i, I definitely heard a few people talking about how you know historically CES was very much focused on the Las Vegas Convention Center stuff, and that was kind of the center and the sands and and um, you know and the Venetian stuff were always kind of like the you know the sort of ugly stepsister part of the show um, that people would check out kind of at the end. Yeah, um, it was your last day stop. Yeah, uh, but I, more than a few people I spoke to were were actually concentrating much more over at the sands of Venetian this time. And we're saying that, you know, a lot more interesting stuff was now kind of was moving over there. And there was at least some sense I got from some people that kind of the center of gravity was was moving a little bit south to, to the sands of Venetian. Do, do you agree or what, what, what was your... I wound up spending all Thursday there, but that was mainly a function. I had a press breakfast at, uh, at the Wynn across the street. With meaning, you know, <laughs> right. of course, a mile away. <laughs> right. And uh, there were a bunch of evening events in the Venetian. And to go from there to the convention center back would have eaten like at least an hour out of my day. And that's with shuttle bus showing no traffic or me just hoofing it. And I'm like, nope, better just stay in one building. And I actually needed all that time because it wasn't just the main floor of the sands. Yeah. We have all these interesting companies showing off. The basement had the Eureka Park exhibit of startups where I guess you pay less for the, the rent since you are, in fact, in the basement of this enormous building. Right. And it's a much, much smaller exhibit space, but lots of very, very strange stuff. Interesting. Not not all too practical, but yeah, quirky. Yeah, I actually spent some time wandering through there as well. It was, I mean, there I definitely saw some interesting and yes quirky things but like i mean one thing that struck me was uh, you did have a, there were a lot of um startups packed into packed into still a fairly large space and it was just kind of like how do you find the stuff that's actually <laughs> all that interesting in there um there, there was some stuff but um yeah i was i was going you know sort of looping my way down this endless space thinking how far does this go because it was also about five o'clock i was starving I had actually not had time to eat lunch that day, and it was sort of a relief to think, wait, there's no more Eureka Park signs. I can go. Right. <laughs> Finish walking this particular stretch of the floor. Yeah. Um, and then, and one other thing that was in Eureka Park, which which um, will shift gears a little bit into, into some other stuff that uh, I know our listeners are probably fairly interested in, was that the um, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office had a had a 
space in Eureka Park. They did indeed this year, and um, and the director Michelle Lee came uh, for the first time. Apparently, it's the very first time that the director of the the patent office that would be you know if the PTO director might want to go to Vegas in the winter at some point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean it's, it's fairly incredible to think about you know considering how much you know and and, and um cta for for many years has had you know they've done a lot of policy stuff and they have um you know panels and and speakers related to policy issues including patents i mean patents has been on the agenda for many years it's it's fairly incredible that that no director has come before um but um uh, we we both got to see um, Michelle Lee, the director of the patent office, speak, and I thought it was it was pretty good. And you had a chance to interview her. Um, what did what did you I think? Agree. So yeah, she is. She has the the background. I think a little more in tune with a lot of people at CTA since she she was a computer scientist. She had worked for Google before this. Uh, you know, there are a lot of other people at running the, heading the PTO who have been very much of I don't want to say intellectual property maximalists, but would, would sort of uh, would maybe not start their discussion of what the PTO does by beginning with the constitutional mandate to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. Yeah. Which, you know, you, I can't say that enough in my own writing. The only reason these things exist, patents and copyrights, is because we decided to make them up so that we would get better stuff as a result. This is not about protecting the American inventor or making the inventor rich, getting the inventor his or her just rewards. It's promote the progress of science and the useful arts. Yep. Helping inventors capitalize on what they do is a good and useful side product, but it's not why this stuff exists in the first place. Yep. And somehow that that discussion has been flipped <laughs> in many cases. But, um, yeah, it was definitely nice to see... Um, to see that that we now have a, a patent office director who seems to actually recognize that, and then you know at, at least from from what we've seen seems to just take a much more expansive uh, view of of how the, the the patent system is supposed to um, you know function. So that that's that was that's been encouraging. <laughs> um, yeah, the depressing part, of course, was you know her talk and speaking with her in this interview afterwards, where you know. On her own, she can, you know, really work hard to make sure that the patents issued these days are precisely defined, clear, you know, that they, they teach the particular invention effectively so people can decide what it is and if they're infringing on it or not. Uh, sort of streamline the appeals process. The PTAB Patent Trial Appeals Board, did I get that right? Yep. Apparently is working really well. It's much faster than going to court, not as crazy expensive. But for a lot of other stuff, especially the way patents get abused by companies who are only in business to sue other companies for patent infringement claims, Congress has to do something. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 uh, I uh, moderated, uh, and I use that term slightly. You loosely. had the easiest moderation job. You spoke like twice. <laughs> yeah, I, I asked a single question. I asked people to well, two questions. I asked people to introduce themselves, <laughs> and and then I asked uh, I asked our panel uh, what was the one thing they would do to uh, fix or improve the patent system, uh, and I never had to speak again <laughs> because everyone started arguing <laughs> with each other. It's um, off to the races. And, uh, and I tried to, to butt in a couple times just to, 
uh, make sure that everybody on the on the panel got to speak, and and I, I couldn't even do that. <laughs> um, but and and that's the unfortunate thing, which is that there was a you know I think that that panel kind of showed that there is a recognition by a lot of people, and you know most of the people on that panel, um, you know involving. You know, mostly entrepreneurs or people who who work for small companies, talking about the pain of the patent system today, not how it's helping them, because in most cases it's not, but but that you know they're just getting attacked and sued left and right, and and it's being used in very anti-competitive ways, and they they want to fix. And then at the end of the panel was uh, Qualcomm, um, you know, which is, alone. <laughs> which is a giant company insisting that. Uh, that they were speaking for the little guy. It was this sort of weird thing where the, the biggest company on the panel insisted it was talking for the little guy, and all the little guys are like, what What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, one of the other people on the panel was Congressman Daryl Issa, a Republican in California. Yep. And you would, by stereotypes, you'd think, oh, well, the GOP has got to take the side of big business. Yep. Especially the company that employs many of his own constituents. Yep. Uh, but I said he sounded more than a little fed up with Qualcomm's oh. hemming and hawing about we have to be very careful. It's, you know, yeah. there's a really valuable business people have built on this. Yeah, he was. He was uh, not going for that. He was. He was not pleased. I. I was actually. I was wondering, right? Because he. He represents San Diego, and Qualcomm is based in San Diego, and. Um, and so, you know, I was kind of wondering how that was going to shake out, but he was clearly not at all happy with Qualcomm and, and more or less accused them of, of holding up patent reform. Um, and yeah. he, he later walked that back a little bit and kind of said, you know, it's not just Qualcomm, but, but he certainly indicated that they were a big part of the problem. Um, and so it was, you know, there were, there were some fireworks, um, and yeah, from a moderator's perspective, I guess it was easy and I didn't have to say anything. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, it was certainly an interesting conversation. Um, did you have a chance to check yeah. out any of the other policy stuff? I don't know if. No, that's the, you know, so policy stuff, a lot of these panel discussions happen in these meeting rooms between the, the central hall and the north hall. Meaning they're they're not actually in anybody's direction. You have to go right. upstairs and down a hall out of your way. Uh, so yeah, some years I get to the, these things, and and this was not one. In, in part, you know, I have the luxury I'm DC based, so right. I'm going to run into these people in the next three weeks, no matter what. Anyways, right. yeah, I mean, so there's there's always a lot of good ones. I've some, moderated some of these panels. Um, you know, last year the the big event was Tom Wheeler, the Federal Communications Commission chairman saying at, at an interview that Gary Shapiro, the head of CTA, conducted that, you know, yes, we're going to write strong net neutrality regulations based on common carrier principles, boom, which was, you know, a 180-degree turnaround from where things were a year before. Yeah. Yeah. Which was... And, and weirdly enough, the, the world has not ended. Uh, <laughs> um, carriers are still investing lots of money in building out their, their networks. So I'm, I'm sure they'll get around to stopping all that investment soon enough. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, AT and T every once in a while makes silly noises, pretending that they've done something. <laughs> but, but the... I, I can tell they have not affected my in-laws' DSL connection yet. But it's got to be on the to-do list at some point. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's crazy. They did have. I didn't. I didn't make it, but they did have um, like that FTC FCC roundtable. Um, yeah, that's one I wish I'd gone to because the FTC, you know, that's it's interesting that they're the one really effective privacy watchdog we have in the government because yep. there aren't 
really good federal laws, but the FTC can step in and say, well, you know, your advertising suggests you're going to be careful with your customers' data, and you weren't, so that falls under our, our bailiwick, and we can then take you to town. Or if you, you suggest one thing, you do another, or you're just outright careless. Yeah. And, and so they've, they've kind of carved this out on their own, and Congress, of course, surprised, is not doing anything. So I'm, I'm glad someone is paying attention to this stuff. Yeah. 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 It, it, it's kind of a, an interesting balance that they kind of have to um, have to deal with in terms of how, you know, how aggressive they are. And, you know, it's it's been interesting. And I agree. I mean, I think that the FTC, for the most part, actually does a pretty good job on this stuff. Um, but it it has felt a little bit. Um, I don't want to say arbitrary, but a little bit random. <laughs> um, well, it's also, you know, the weird thing is if you as a company write some incredibly vague and flexible privacy policy that gives them latitude to do whatever they want, then the FTC has got nothing because they yeah. didn't say you were going to protect your privacy in the first case. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we, we, uh, a few months ago had, had a whole podcast on how like, yeah, the whole concept of privacy policies is kind of stupid <laughs> because all of the incentives are basically write a policy that says we can do whatever we want. And then, um, you have the FTC can't do anything about it. And the public, because nobody actually reads the privacy policies, thinks that if you have a privacy policy, it probably means you're, you know, keeping stuff private. <laughs> Whereas the reality yes. could be the exact opposite. Well, like data retention policy, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. And then, I, I mean, it actually felt to me, because um, I actually, you know, do try to attend a bunch of the policy stuff. Um, this year, I felt a little bit, I, I don't want to say lighter, but. There wasn't as much, I think, serious uh, that was, you know, on the table. Last year, obviously, net neutrality was big. Um, patent reform is always an issue. Um, copyright stuff sort of comes and goes. There was a copyright panel that I attended that was, you know, it was kind of the same discussion as always. <laughs> um, right. You know, uh, and so the, I, I don't know how far that went. There was a discussion on kind of... Um, how work is changing, you know, and sort of got into the whole um, employee versus contractor discussion, which I think is, you know, is is an interesting discussion that a lot of people are having. But, um, you know, well, especially see in Vegas, seeing this was the first CES where Uber and Lyft were, were in operation, you could take them from the airport and, and not deal with some of America's finest taxis. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, and that was actually a, a big story, I think, uh, to some extent for for CES was that, um, yeah, Uber and Lyft. I actually um, I knew because they were telling everyone that Uber and Lyft were available, but I actually did not realize they were available from the airport. I just kind of naturally assumed that they weren't. So I I did it would take it easy to miss that. Yeah, I, I didn't even realize this until meeting my lift that they have a designated pickup area in the parking deck, which like fine. It's, you know, connected walkway across from the terminal. And it says to me, your car at 2M, which I'm, I'm a simple man. So I thought, <laughs> is there some 2M as part of the second floor? Right. <laughs> this is a 2M floor between two and three. Oh, it's, it's like track nine and a half from Harry Potter. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd like to know the backstory behind that. Yeah, well, I had, um, I mean, I, I, so I took a cab from the airport, um, and amazingly, probably because I came in a little bit later than most people, there actually was not a cab line, which is insane because, 
there, there's, there's always a cab line. There's always a cab line, and usually it's massive yeah. and takes forever, even if they're somewhat efficient about moving people through it. Um, but there wasn't. I literally walked right up to the front of the cab line and hopped in a cab. It was incredible. Um, but uh, um, but I did take uh, a lift back to to the airport, and it was like less than half the price is, is what the, the cab ride was. But I did have to deal with... Um, trying to, to find the designated pickup spot. So the same kind of thing that you did where Oh, outside um, the convention center? It wasn't I wasn't at the convention center. I was I was down the strip. Um and I was trying to figure out because I, I I think both of us stayed at, at Airbnb places as opposed to any of the hotels, but I figured I think yours was quite a lot nicer than mine. <laughs> I, I lucked out. I had a very nice Airbnb. I, I had a ten-minute walk to the convention center, so I had that going for me. That and that is uh, not to be taken lightly. That that may have been much better than the fact that I had a very nice view out of my Airbnb. Um, but I, I just walked over to the to the nearest uh, hotel because I figured that would be an easier place for them to actually pick me up. Um, but it turned out they're 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 not allowed there, so I had to go uh-huh. to, to okay. a different. There, there. Like basically, the hotel had you know multiple different entrances, and there was only one that was designated for ride sharing opportunities. And so I had to find that, and the guy was calling me, and then I couldn't find it, and then he was he was getting frustrated and was about to take off, and then it finally worked out, and and everything was fine. But I heard from a lot of people that that you know having that option certainly made getting around Vegas much easier this year um, for CES than in the past. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole I, I've been to Vegas so many times for CES, and so few other times. Uh, <laughs> most of the other times have been for other trade shows. I, I think right. I've been to the city three times as a civilian. Right. And maybe this whole system where everyone must get a taxi by you know waiting in line at a casino and there's no street hailing, maybe that works fine. <laughs> it sure doesn't work for 170 thousand people. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, it's interesting. It'll see. It, it'll be interesting to see, kind of, you know, what what happens in the, in the future. Um, but uh, I think I, don't know, I covered most of what I wanted to cover. Is there anything else that you think um, is really important that that we didn't cover that you think people would want to hear about? Well, the one other thing that sort of stuck with me. I wrote about this, and I've had people ask about it. With Internet of Things devices, Internet has embedded software on board. The industry has really got to get a better answer for how long will this be supported. Yeah. Samsung showed off Family Hub Fridge, which is basically a general purpose computer that also keeps food cold or freezes it, depending on which part of the thing you put it in. And people keep fridges for a long time, like 15 years is nothing. Yep, and I can't think of any general purpose computer that's gotten software updates that long. But this this will need them. It's got a bunch of cloud connected apps. You can place your orders through, um, you know, Shoprite or not Peapop. It's not supported yet, but uh, FreshDirect. Uh-huh. And you know, there, there's shopping list synchronization, shared calendar support, all these other things that, if not properly updated, will break. Yeah. And it's not like, and so looking at this, I thought. You know, I get all these use cases. That's why I have a phone in my pocket in my kitchen, or I, I bring over my iPad because, you know, if, if those stop getting updates after two, three years or whatever, that's fine. There'll be a better model I can buy out there. And it's not as if there's all this other hardware in each of them that is would still be useful as there would be if they were also fridges. Yeah. 
And it's something I've also realized. I mean, I have a smart TV I bought in 2009. And in the last couple of years, Sony shipped updates for this thing for like three, four years, which is pretty amazing. But in the last year or two, the YouTube app stopped working. Hmm. Um, one or two other connected video apps have also kind of gone offline because, you know, they somebody shut down an API that the thing needed. And so it's it's getting dumber over time, which is fine, <laughs> you know. It's going to be seven years uh, this summer, and that's a pretty good long run for TV. Sure. But, but. <laughs> I suspect I won't be ready to upgrade to a, a UHD set until probably when I can buy one that has the technical capability to receive UHD over the air. Not because I need that, but because the standard that's going to make that possible should also make over the air reception of plain old HD a lot more reliable, yeah. which is good news for cord cutters. This ATSC 3.0 standard should also let TV stations. You know, provide data services of their own and not just broadcast other people's content. If done right, it could solve a lot of problems uh, and maybe also free up some spectrum that could be, you know, sold off to the wireless carriers or whoever. Yeah. Um, and that's the sort of like future proofing move, move I'd want to do, which means I've basically determined that I've got another two years, at least another year of looking at TVs at CES with no intention of putting any one of them on my shopping list. Right. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's interesting on, on multiple levels. But, yeah, I wonder if um, there's going to have to be more guarantees in terms of support. Um, and I wonder I wonder what that means, especially for some smaller companies and, and startups in terms of how much they'll actually be able to live up to those promises. Well, even the big well it could be, you know, in, in some ways, the idea of having just a plain old monitor where all the, the electronics are outside. Yeah. You know, that could be a good way to go back to it, but but not if you then have on the outside there's a Chromecast and a Roku and an over-the-air tuner and, and all this other stuff that, you know, maybe one remote still controls all of them, but that's a whole lot of wires to mess with on the back of this. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, <laughs> interesting challenges. Yeah, I don't actually know how it's going to shake out. Yeah. Well... I think we'll have to go back to CES next year. <laughs> I know we'll be back there. Why would uh, that be any different from the last 19? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, but anyways, um, this was great. Uh, thank you very much for, for taking the time. I know you are um, still recovering. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd, I'd like to think I can get in a nap this afternoon, but... Let's let's be realistic. We know that's not going to happen. <laughs> right, right. The um, yeah, CES is uh, take takes a bit out of everyone, I think. But um, but I really appreciate you taking the time and, and having this discussion. Um, if you uh, don't follow Rob, uh, you should. Uh, again, he writes a lot at uh, Yahoo Tech and at, at USA Today, uh, and he's on Twitter. Uh, and it's just at Rob Pegarero. Your, your full name and uh, always interesting stuff and uh, thanks for joining us and we'll, we'll have you back again sounds great alright thanks again and thanks to everyone who's listening and we'll be back next week with uh, I have no idea what we're going to do next week but we'll have some other podcast next week so <laughs> thanks for joining us and uh, we'll talk to you soon thanks bye Someone will get hurt. So grab a shovel and dig up the